Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Patrick Jinks. Each week, through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and professional speaker. And now, here's Patrick. Hello, leaders. Welcome to the Leadership Window. I am Patrick Jinks, leadership and strategy coach and president of the Jinx Perspective. Hope everyone's doing great here in the middle of February and uh, that your 2021 is off to a great start despite all the craziness and stuff that's happening. And um, we have today, boy, what a what just an outstanding episode. It's going to move quickly because my guest is in high demand and we've got a limited amount of time here that we've carved out with her. But my guest is Raven Solomon. She is a global diversity, equity and inclusion thought leader and a nationally recognized keynote speaker. And what she does is she helps organizations get, I love this term, future ready, get future ready. And she does that by helping them understand generations, racial equity, and their intersection. Going to say a little bit more about that later on, and I'm also going to tell a story about how I met Raven, but I thought that uh, this little clip here might be the best introduction of Raven to hear from her herself. So take two or three minutes and listen in here. When I think about the future of work, I think about diversity, diversity of markets, diversity of talent, diversity of ideas and thought. If we aren't already leveraging the diversity that currently exists within our workforce, we are already behind. Ever since I was 22 years old, I've been leading teams comprised of baby boomers all the way down to millennials. I ultimately help companies get future ready by understanding generations, racial equity, and their intersection. Teams who had diversity at the decision-making table were the ones who performed better. At the end of the day, generational diversity and inclusion helps move us forward. What I bring to the table through my learning experiences, and that could include anything from a keynote presentation of 90 minutes to a training that's a full day. You're getting energy, you're getting a diverse perspective, you're getting someone who can relate to just about anyone. I've got to get you ready. You're about to be leaders. If you're not already, you're about to be managing and leading people. And the question is, are you ready? So when we talk about the future of work, rarely are we talking about the expectations of our future talent. Right now, Gen Z is the most ethnically, racially diverse generation that we've ever seen in the US. And so with that, what are we doing to better understand that diversity? And then beyond that, what are we doing to leverage that diversity? It's one thing to have millennials and Gen Z in your organization. Are they at the table and have you empowered them enough to make decisions? It's about informing and understanding difference. And that is what diversity training is. And the, the result is inclusion and belonging. Ultimately, I'm a problem solver. And the problems that I've decided to focus on over the last several years include generations and racial equity. I don't think you can talk about racial inequity without talking about generations. 
That is the work that I am committed to doing. As a woman of color, as a black woman in the United States, I have a very unique experience. So I understand the complexity of intersectionality. I understand the life experience of people of color in this country. My overall vision for the future of the workplace is a workplace that is inclusive and that creates a sense of belonging for everyone, where we are able to leverage the vigor of the youth, the vitality, the creativity, alongside leverage the experience, the wisdom, the social capital that's built within our older generation, then I think at that point, we are future ready. A couple of years ago, I attended the Diversity and Inclusion Summit that Dr. Nika White curates out of Greenville, South Carolina, and it was outstanding. It was the first one of those I'd ever been to. There was just so much richness there and so much learning. And uh, one of the breakouts was uh, this woman I'd never heard of. Her name's Raven Solomon, and she was talking about generational diversity. And I thought, well, that's different. You know, we, that, that's something I haven't been a lot to. Let me go check that out. And here's the thing. I've been to conferences. Well, this is what I told her at the end of the workshop. I walked up to her and I said, Raven, I've been attending conferences, many of them like at a global level for over 30 years. Going back to my newspaper days, my days with United Way Worldwide, we've heard some of the best keynote speakers and programming and just outstanding stuff. This is singularly the best conference workshop I have ever attended. And I mean, and I've told a bunch of people this and I walked up and I told her that and, you know, she, you know, very modestly, you know, she kind of, oh, you're so sweet. Oh, that's amazing. You've made my day. And I said, well, you're going to be hearing from me. And, uh, and here we are. <laughs> she heard from me. I said, you have got to come on this podcast. So, Hey, look, if you stop this podcast right now and go to ravensolomon.com, book this woman, I'm telling you, just book her. If you got a conference or a need in your company or whatever, do it. I don't, I don't make these kind of recommendations often or, or, um, lightly. So she is the founder of, uh, the center for next generation leadership and professional development out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome Raven Solomon. Thank you so much for carving out time for us here. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your kind words. Always so generous, always so just sweet. And I appreciate that tremendously. I never forgot those words from you that day. Well, I never, ever. I never forgot the workshop and, and it's, it's with true authenticity. Now I could say, you know, well, here's the best workshop I've been to on employee engagement, or here's the best workshop I've been to on, you know, measuring outcomes in your nonprofit programs. This wasn't just the best, gen the best program on generational diversity. This, this was just a great, here's the deal. It was energetic. It was engaging. It was informative. It was relevant and timely. It was dynamic. It was different. Um, the, cr you lit the crowd up and, uh, you lit me up anyway. Um, I know that's kind of a long intro for you, but I want people to, to, to sort of, um, know that you are the real deal in what you're doing. And I think you are a thought leader. I would love for you to start Raven just by telling us a little bit about the story, about how you got to this space and doing what you're doing, because your story is unique. And I think it's an inspiration of how sometimes hardship or things in our lives can lead to something amazing and great. You have one of those stories. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got to this space in helping uh, people figure this out and get future ready. Absolutely. Well, I 
was born and raised in Charlotte, North Carolina, went to NC State, not too far from Charlotte, about two and a half hours away in Raleigh, North Carolina, graduated from NC State as valedictorian of NC State, which is something that I'm super proud of. And then I went to run a chip route. <laughs> so people are always like, well, why in the world would you go deliver chips after graduating as valedictorian of the largest university in North Carolina? <laughs> and really, it, it was all about this idea that I had fallen in love with while in college, while in undergrad of servant leadership. And I, I understood this idea now of really starting as a servant first and then using that um that servant leadership style to then influence those who are within your, your circle of, of influence, if you will. And so running the route, I knew that after you ran it for a year, I was a part of a managerial training program. I'd be given my first team. And so I was like, I can run a route for a year. And so I did that. I was in the best shape of my life, but it, it is hard work. And so to make a long story short, after that year, I was handed my first team of 16 white men who were old enough to be my parents. And I, you know, if your listeners haven't seen, I am an African-American woman. At the time, I was about 21, 22. And these guys had been doing their jobs longer than I'd been alive, literally. <laughs> and they made no <laughs> qualms or hesitations about reminding me of that. And so I, very quickly, I had to learn how to manage up the generational ladder and how to gain the respect of those who had been in this work longer than I'd been on this earth. I had to learn how to you know, earn their trust and keep it, I had to learn how to get over the imposter syndrome that comes with being a young leader and leading folks who are older than you. And so, you know, luckily I was able to figure that out fairly quickly and uh, hit the fast track at, at Frito-Lay PepsiCo and was just super successful being promoted year over year as a young professional. Unfortunately, in the midst of that career, I lost my parents less than 30 days apart. Both of them were unexpected. And that led to me just throwing myself into work even more, getting even better at my job, but also not really dealing with the trauma uh, and the grief of loss to that degree. And uh, to make a long story short, I was at the peak of my career. I had uh, attained an executive level role at 28, which I was super proud of and leading a large organization. And uh, one day I had a seizure and it was totally unannounced, of course, unbeknownst to me um, that I had anything going on in my brain that would create that sort of reaction. And I ended up going to the hospital um, was released to go back to work, went back to work about 30 days later, I had another seizure and that time I was driving. And so realizing that that could have easily been the end of my life had I been on the highway and not a road, had I been going, you know, 20 miles faster, that could have been the end of my life. And so that alone, Patrick, is enough to cause someone to reflect and to do some things differently. And ultimately what it led to for me was uh, a change in career. I had to make a decision of, of whether I was going to continue to kind of push through this super stressful career, albeit successful, or 
I was going to part ways and figure out something else that would give me the balance that I needed to be healthy. And so I chose the latter and that led me to my speaking career and then, you know, started speaking particularly about you know, just kind of motivation and speaking to young professionals about leading up the generational ladder. And so that was really my introduction, if you will, to studying generations. And then from there really began to help all generations understand how we each show up differently and why and to provide some context and create some awareness and increase empathy so that we can effectively work together and leverage each other's strengths um, in pursuit of organizational outcomes. Mm, yeah. Uh, and again, thank you for that. You told that story so succinctly and well and still captured all the emotion of it. I know there's a lot more to it than that. And it's funny, people who are really successful in this work, I think maybe I'm wrong. I don't know the, I don't have any research on this, but it seems like the, the ones that succeed the most are not the people who grew up going, I want to be a, a speaker on, you know, I want to be like a, usually there was, there was something in our path that kind of broke off or snapped or like traumatized us or whatever. A lot of people say, well, you know, I lost my job and, and this, you know, I decided, well, you know, I'll just go on my own. So usually there's, there have been some sort of hardship that have led people to what they're doing and it just unlocked this sort of passion and your story about your first leadership role um, you know, that that's such a great story because you're not just out here just talking about something you, you lived it and you lived it early on and recognized how uh, big a deal it was to manage and lead across generations. I want to really quickly do this, um, for our listeners, cause we get confused and we forget the age group sometimes walk us through real quick. Um, the, the generations, I think we basically, we talk about five generations these days when we're, when we're thinking about this. Um, but just so everybody kind of remembers the setup, would you quickly walk through the generations and maybe one statement about how that generation approaches work? Like what's mm. their what's their mindset to approaching work? Because I know that's part of your construct in your book, uh, leading your parents, which we'll talk about a little bit later too. But w could could you do that? Could you just for our listeners walk through quickly the framework that we're going to be talking about for the next half hour? Absolutely. So, <clears throat> excuse me. You'll read a lot that there are five generations in the workplace, and you know I'll be honest, there are very few workplaces that have five generations mm -hmm. um, because that fifth generation is actually known as traditionalists, also known as the silent generation. And these folks are between you know, 76 and 96 years old now. And so, yes, there are certainly some folks who are in their you know mid to late 70s, early 80s who are still working, but the number of workplaces where that's actually happening is, is far and few in between. Mm -hmm. However, you know, about 10 years ago, that was absolutely the case. And so there were actively five generations working alongside one another daily. Now, I would say give us about 10 years as, as Gen Alpha, which is the succeeding generation to Gen Z, which we don't talk much about because they're babies at this point. But uh, give us about 10 years and we'll be back to that space where we have 10 generations actively working alongside one another. But nonetheless, we don't talk a lot about traditionalists. So for the sake of time, I'll just kind of skip on to baby boomers mm -hmm. who are still a big part of our workforce. Baby boomers are about a quarter, if not a little more of our workforce today. They are between the ages of 57 years old and 75 years old. And so what I always share about baby boomers is, you know, baby boomers grew up in this very optimistic time, um, but they also grew up um, 
at a time where children were seen and not heard, right? And so they they have this very strong respect for authority and expect that same respect uh, for authority. And authority is not just gained by you know, the work that you've done and the tenure that you've put in, although it, it strongly has, but it's also based on how long you've been, you know, in the game, right? Mm-hmm. In in life, yep. how experienced you are. And so there's this expectation of respect. And so when I present on generations, it's particularly multi-generational leadership, I use this concept I've created called a lead language. And a lead language is very similar to a love language. A love language being the way in which people best receive love. Mm-hmm. A lead language is the way that people best receive leadership. And so the lead language for baby boomers is, is respect, right? If you give them this thing, especially as a younger leader or any leader of that, for that matter, you're going to get the best out of them. And, and that really translates to respect for or, you know, their tenure, their experiences, their wisdom, their ideas, etc. Next up is Gen X. So Gen X is currently between the ages of 42 and 56. So Gen X grew up as latchkey kids. And what that then really generates in the workplace and into adulthood for them is this very kind of ultra independence. They are supremely (laughs) kind of, you know, hands off, if you will, or at least appreciate that style of leadership when receiving leadership. And so Gen X grew up in the time where, you know, at the age in my research shows that at the age of, of six, as early as six, they were independent in some capacity, getting off the bus, walking home from school by themselves, letting themselves in by themselves. And so if you think about that degree of self-reliance that early in life, that doesn't leave them. And so there's this expectation for trust. And so that is their lead language ultimately in the organization. Mm. Next up is is the infamous Gen Y, also known as millennials. Millennials are currently between the ages of 26 and 41. So sometimes people are surprised to hear that millennials are are in their 40s. And that is very true because we we ultimately relate millennial with youth for some reason, but that is not the case any longer. So millennials, uh, they they were the first generation to grow up in these very child-centric homes. And so if you think about it, the the home revolved around the child. It revolved around their soccer schedule and their music schedule and all the other things, right? And so millennials are used to a certain degree of of attention, um, also used to a certain degree of of empowerment, whether that is having a say-so in what we eat for dinner or, you know, being at the dinner table and being asked about your day and about what you think and, and, you know, what you desire, et cetera. And so what that leads to or led to in the workplace is this very much so, uh, some people call it entitlement, but it's an expectation to be engaged in decision-making processes. It's also an expectation to be empowered enough to speak to leaders and, and have their voice be heard. Why? Mom and dad were the leaders of the house. They had very much so their voices heard, et cetera. So the millennials for them, 
their lead language is attention. And all that means is really being locked in and understanding and giving them the uh, the attention that it takes as a leader to really understand their career aspirations, what they desire, giving them consistent feedback, quality performance reviews, those types of things. Lastly, we have Generation Z, which is currently between the ages of eight and 25, right? And so, you know, a pretty big gap if you think about it. However, there's there's a lot that we see that is consistent between millennials and Gen Z, especially as it relates to social issues and their viewpoints around, um, you know, government involvement and fixing social issues, etc. And so with Gen Z, I think the thing that I would highlight most as it relates to that generation is their passion and their vigor and their um I would say relentless pursuit of equality, equality and equity. And so that really, you know, comes in to my work. It really explains why I focus on helping organizations understand generations, racial equity and their intersection. That intersection is the, the next generation of employees and customers for that matter are expecting that organizations are engaged and and take a, a clear stance on racial equity. And so exploring that intersection is really about helping folks understand how each generation may see race and racism very differently, but then also helping organizations get that this generation coming behind millennials called Gen Z, they are just not going to play the, the games that former generations have. Their expectation for equity is, is beyond any generation that we've seen thus far. I'll give you one stat and then I'll shut up unless you ask your next question. There is a study that shows that the number one factor that indicates whether Gen Z will trust an organization or not is their commitment to equity. Mm. Wow. Okay. <sighs> See, folks, what I mean, how good this is. Um, you know, I didn't think about it uh Raven until after your workshop, I've seen this generational table and been to, you know, little mini workshops and things on it. We all think about it and we're familiar somewhat with it. I hadn't thought about it until after your workshop that the multi-generationalism occurred within my own family uh, among my siblings. I'd never thought of that. You would think about generations of my siblings and I are all of the same generation, but not really because there's 10 years between my oldest brother and me. I'm the baby of six and I'm the only, if you look, if you look at the table, I'm the only one of the six that falls into the gen X. Everyone else is baby boom. Now, you know, there's nothing magical about, well, I was born three years earlier, so I'm a baby boomer and that makes me this. But there were 10 years between the oldest and the youngest. And as I thought about it and I thought about um, the closeness I had with my youngest sister, who was next to me in line, uh, was very different than the closeness I had. We had a closeness, but it was different than the closeness I had with my my oldest brother. And we lived very different experiences in that 10 with the same parents in the same household, you know, we grew up in the army. My, my dad was in the army and we moved everywhere, but we lived very different experiences right within the same group of siblings. And I had really never thought too much about the differences in our philosophies and approach to life as being really generational, even though we're technically in, in the same generation. Does that make sense? 
makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And it has a lot to do with how generations form and how they come to be. So ultimately, what happens is we all go through the same phases of life, right? We go through childhood, we go through young adulthood, old age, if we're lucky, etc. But what makes us different is as we go through those phases of life, we are individually encountered with a bunch of different stimuli that then shape mm. how we think, how we behave, and what we define to be normal. And so even though you and your sister grew up in the same household with the same parents and you know you, you had relatively similar experiences under the same roof, what was going on in society during mm. the time you were in your formative years, which is where we know um, we as human beings begin to kind of shape our belief systems and we become more aware of the world and what adult life actually means and what, you know, mm -hmm. what our role might just be in this, this space. And so what is playing out in society during those formative years for each of us and each of our generations absolutely takes some degree of formation on our thoughts, our beliefs, and the way that we define normalcy. Oh, that makes good sense because you're right. We went to different schools and we were taught by teachers from different generations too and we were growing yeah you're right the, it's the external environment that that helped shape that a lot as well I, I'd love for you to say just a little bit more about this intersection because when uh, when I met you at your conference this wasn't this wasn't a part at least it wasn't uh, a loud part of your brand construct and what you were working on it was truly about generational diversity and you have gradually, you know, you've you've kind of evolved into this this intersection space. And I'm sure that's it's not something that's brand new for you, but you've brought it into your work of helping people think about their workplace and diversity. I'd like for you to say just a little bit more about the intersection that you help people through and help people navigate in the workplace. What is that intersection between generational diversity and racial equity? Uh, not because, because here's what, here, just a little more about the question. It's not that it's not the intersection. If I understand it right, it's not the intersection intersection between generational diversity and racial diversity. It's the intersection mm -hmm. between generational diversity and racial equity. Mm -hmm. that is yours. And so I'd like to just understand a little bit more about that intersection and what it really means. What are the implications? Yeah, so you're right. Um, I, I think we met in 2019. And so in 2019, my sole focus was generational diversity. Mm -hmm. And then 2020 happened, right? And we all know just the Change extremes the of things that, that took place. But a big part of that was this kind of uh, racial reckoning that, that was long overdue in our country. And so with that, as you know, we saw George Floyd be killed, we saw Ahmaud Aubrey be killed, we saw Breonna Taylor be killed. And, and it was almost this, for lack of better words, I hate to say it this way, but this kind of perfect storm where the attention of the world was on this one problem. And that one problem was the racial inequity within the United States. And so with that, a lot of my customers that I'd work with around generational diversity tapped and said, hey, we trust you. We know your approach. Can you help us in this area? We haven't had these conversations about race, about racism, about systemic racism, about allyship, about inclusion, inclusive leadership, all of these things. We need help. Can you help us? And um, 
what it took me back to was years and years ago, I'd started this community to educate white allies um, and engage white allies in the fight for um, social justice and racial equity. And so this was just kind of a hobby, something I'd done um, as a passion project of sorts. And so it really resurfaced again in 2020. And um it, it became clear that this was something that needed my attention and that I needed to to dedicate myself to. And so it, it was like this, Patrick, if you are a black leader and you have any degree of influence and there comes this perfect storm that enables you, if you seize the moment to make an impact or a dent in the pain and the trauma that that you and your friends and your family and your ancestors and everyone else have experienced, it, it was almost my responsibility to make the adjustment. And so I included racial equity in my work for that reason. You know, I, it, it's not easy. And um, I can't say that it was planned, but I think it was divine ultimately. And so Helping folks understand that intersection is really about helping folks see the generational business case and moral case for racial equity. And I spoke to it a little earlier, but when we talk about Gen Z and their expectations, if we want to survive as organizations, and certainly if we want to thrive as organizations, we have to understand those expectations and begin to position ourselves as organizations to meet them. And because it's not just they're our future leaders and they're our future employees, but they are our current buyers and there will they will be our mm. customers, excuse me, and they will be our future customers to come. And here's the, the reality. The United States is only growing more and more racially diverse. Every generation becomes more racially diverse, more ethnically diverse. So Gen Z is the most racially and ethnically diverse generation we've seen in the United States. Gen Alpha, the, the generation after them, will be even more diverse. And so the trend is there. That's why I speak about getting future ready, because it really is about getting future ready through diversity or being prepared for the racial, eth ethnic, um, you know, and every other form of diversity that is encroaching. And so that intersection is about that business and moral, that generational business and moral case for racial equity, but it's also about the reality that this diversity, equity, and inclusion work is really generational and it has transpired generationally. So for a lot of boomers, right, it was about affirmative action. You, you had to do it. At least that's what their their introduction to DEI work is and has been in the workforce. It's like, oh, okay, here's these these the government's telling me I have to do this and we just have to do it so we won't get in trouble. That was affirmative action. Good in theory, good in practice, and it started the wheel, right? It's, so we'll leave it there. <laughs> so there is affirmative action for baby boomers. And then Gen X came along and said, hey, this affirmative action thing, it's just not enough. We really need to be focused on diversity because it's the right thing to do. And 
we think it's the smart thing to do. And so the movement became about diversity. And that was with Gen X. We have Gen X to thank for really kind of starting this diversity movement inside of the workplace. Mm -hmm. And then these folks called millennials came along. This is all generational, right? These folks called millennials came along and said, hey, you know, it's really good that we have diversity at the table. We've got difference at the table. That's that's awesome. However, there's still people at the table who don't have voices. So we need more than diversity. We need inclusion. And so the movement became D and I became diversity and inclusion with millennials. And then and now I should say today, many folks will see that there's another letter that's been added to this work, D, E, and I, and that E is all about equity. And that really is being spearheaded by those younger millennials and those Gen Zers who are saying, hey, it's great that we have difference at the table. It's also awesome that, that we've given folks a voice at the table, but equity says some voices at the table are still louder because of historic marginalization and oppression and inequality, et cetera. So some folks at the table actually need microphones for volume parity. And that is what equity is. And so that's the generational evolution of DE&I work. And it's my job to help folks understand and see that so that we better understand where we're going. Well, you are great at your job. I'm beaming right now because I'm learning. I'm learning. You framed this in a different way. I have not heard it framed generationally. And I've heard lots of good stuff, you know, and I'm trying to listen and learn myself about all of this. Um, But but the way you just laid it out, you know, and I was thinking about this. um, We've used the term to describe America as a melting pot. And it really is in some ways kind of just now happening, right? Melting is a slow process. And we're actually now like, as you're describing this evolution of the generations and the fact that the alpha, is that what you call them? Alpha generation. I didn't even know that. Uh, Gen alpha. um, The fact that they're the, they're going to be the most um, racially and ethnically diverse generation of our time just tells us we're continuing, we're continuing to melt Here's what dawns on me as you go through those generations. I'm thinking, so so is the dynamic then, or at least a part of the dynamic, that the even the the Xers and the Boomers do they have do they have more difficulty with this whole concept? And is part of it the fact that it's younger people telling them, like preaching to? Do they feel preached to? Do they feel like who are you? You're younger. You don't know what you're talking about. I've got my experiences and this is how life really works. Does that dynamic, is that part of the the difficulty? I know I'm really generalizing here, but. Right, right. And, and it's always important to note that generations in general make a lot of generalizations. And I always, you know, make that connection it's with true. folks that if you think about it, they have the same root word yeah. for and a reason. Gen- and, and the next yeah. generation is never as good as theirs, right? Exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah. It's this, it's this, you know, sense of membership that we all have in our yeah. generation. And that that's part of what makes us a generation. Um, but to answer your question, I think it, it is in part about that, but I think it's more so about their experiences, right? And mm. and what they define to be normal and, you know, what they think and how they think and how they behave based on those factors that I described earlier, right? So when baby boomers and, and even traditionalists for sure were coming of age or going through that formation process that I talked about from childhood to old age, as they were going through those formative years, think about what racism looked like then. 
it's vastly different today. Yeah, and, and what so was normal? What mind, was considered normal? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, just think about the blatant, the the overt racism that existed, the mm -hmm. lynchings, the um, you know. Uh, the white and black water fountains yeah. and, you know, the signs that make you see, like this was very much so a real thing. And so if I am a traditionalist and I see where we are today, I'm thinking we've made a lot of progress. Things are not as bad as you all say, Gen Z. Like, right. what do you mean? But what I help folks understand is that racism is generationally relative. And so if you, mm. you know, Gen Z is feeling the same way that traditionalists felt, you know, 60 years ago, 60 and 70 years ago. It just looks very different. Mm. Um, and so you can't if, if I'm a boomer, if I'm a traditionalist, you can't take away from what Gen Z and millennials are articulating and, and feeling and reporting because it looks different than what you felt and reported. Right. Um, and so I think that is really a big part of the the contention or the misunderstanding. And then in second part, it is a little bit of that because we know that Gen Z is the smartest generation of their age that we've ever seen in the, in the U.S. And it's funny because every time I have this conversation with Gen Z about Gen Z, you can just see their chest puff out <laughs> and they just get so proud of themselves. And everybody else is looking at each other like, what? Wait a minute. Where are you sure about that? Exactly. Exactly. And, and the reality is it is very true, but it's not because their brains are bigger or they're just smarter by nature. It really is because of the ease to access the ease of access to information for them. Mm -hmm. They can, you know, pick up their cell phones and find information that it would have taken their grandparents or their great grandparents, you know, a walk to the library and eight encyclopedias to figure out. Yeah. And so it really is the ease and access to information. Um, they can also pick pick up Netflix and, and learn about systemic racism, you know, and if you think about the average traditionalist or baby boomer, maybe they don't have Netflix and maybe they're not aware of, of the movie, the 13th or any of the other movies that are out there on Amazon prime to educate. And so it's the access to um, this type of information that is readily available to Gen Z that makes them be the educators in some of these conversations. It's interesting that you use the word smart on that. I think we could unpack that if we have more time, because there are also studies and this is not a, I'm not trying to slam Gen Z or anybody, but um, there are also studies that show that empathy markers and emotional intelligence has declined as generations come down because of smartphones, because of screens, period. Um, I mean, there's studies that say that, you know, the presence of a screen reduces the empathy markers in the room. And, and, uh, I won't go into where that comes from, but I've, I've seen these and I, mm -hmm. and I've also experienced that it's sort of real. So when you say smart access to information is one thing and the book smarts or the understanding mm -hmm. and the, the, all of that, but there's also that other side of leadership 100%. Uh, that, that many people call maybe the soft skills, which I've always challenged that word, but the soft skills that say, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there's, we're dealing with people here though, not just facts. We're dealing with people 100%. and their experiences and their emotions. Yes. And and when you and I got on, before we started our conversation, we talked about a work group that I've, that I've been working with. Um, and that is the exact issue that, that we are working through. It's that I understand the passion. I understand that you care. I understand that, you know, right. However, there is 
a a way to navigate the system. There is diplomacy. There is emotional intelligence that we have to employ here and we have to develop. And so you're right. While that, that also leads to some degree, it's a blind spot and some get it, some don't, but um, it's, it's a certain degree of, of arrogance sometimes. And I, luckily I, you know, being a millennial myself, I can have this conversation with Gen Z in a different way to say, you, this is arrogant. You are not as smart as you think, right? You know, because you lack this this entire side of intelligence. What a great point! As to who says that matters. Mm-hmm. I had Charles Weathers on the on the program a couple of weeks ago, and he he said that he said, you know, you might have something powerful and right to say, but you might not be the right person to say it. Yeah. And so I love that. Um, boy, I wish we weren't uh, a little crunched on time. We're definitely going to have to have you back. I do want to ask this, uh, I got two questions for you and you can just answer them as quickly as you need to. Mm-hmm. How do we cut through the noise? Because you're right. 2020, it did raise the bar. And now everybody, look, I work with nonprofit clients all over the country. They're all putting diversity, equity, and inclusion in their strategic plans, DEI mm-hmm. and REI. You see them everywhere. It's all over the place. And it gets to the point where just like anything else, it gets so noisy that people just go, oh, enough are like, whoa, I get it. You know, I get it. Mm-hmm. How do you cut, how do we cut through this noise and take this to the place of real learning? I think you're actually demonstrating one of the answers to that right now by, by this kind of teaching and talking and things. But, you know, why do people resist diversity, equity, and inclusion training? And how do we cut through that noise to get people inspired to want to progress this? Hmm. I think people resist it because it 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 is sometimes felt like a personal attack because, um, you know, I think we oftentimes or a lot of us will separate ourselves from being a part of the solution if we think we're not a, pro- a part of the problem. But <laughs> we all are a part of the problem if we're not a part of the solution, right? And mm-hmm. so um, ultimately, I think we cut through the noise by making it personal. It is diversity, equity, and inclusion is each and every one of our responsibilities. And it is, I- I've been talking about this idea of individual inclusion, because that speaks to the things that I need to do as an individual to daily create inclusion around me and create a sense of belonging for those who I engage with. So I think we cut through the noise by helping folks understand their personal responsibility in this work. And then second to that, I think we ultimately need to help folks Uh, see how their blind spots can create trauma and harm for Mm -hmm. some folks, making Mm -hmm. it personal. So I think it's two parts. It's making it personal. And then there's also helping folks clearly understand that this is not just the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do. So there's a business case that has to be understood. Absolutely. Really, really good. Last question, uh, Raven. And it's just, again, thanks so much for sharing this. Um, what is your number one piece of advice for leaders? And, you know, particularly in the context of this conversation, what's kind of the, what's kind of the key point you'd like to drive home to everyone here? Yeah, I think if, if I had one piece of advice for leaders of today is there's a, I don't even want to call it a new leadership capability, but it's certainly a more prevalent leadership capability now that's being asked for or desire than 
ever in the past. And that is the leadership capability of inclusive leadership. And inclusive leadership is all about being able to lead effectively across difference and create inclusion. And so we've talked about servant leadership. We've talked about all different types of leadership over the course of our careers as leaders. Now it's time that we really focus our attention on being inclusive leaders, being able to effectively identify our own bias, right? And and manage through that. Being courageous enough to have difficult conversations, being humble enough and transparent enough to say, I don't know what I'm doing in this this particular area. Being curious enough to have these these um, you know moments of awareness where you seek cultural engagement and cultural intelligence and you know diversifying your own experiences. All of these things are are just daily activities that we can do as leaders to make us more inclusive. And so my one piece of advice would be to really try to sharpen your your tool as an inclusive leader. There's a bunch of literature out there about it. Google it. Um, One place I think we should start is really identifying and understanding bias. Um, I, I also actually have an article out right now that's about five things anyone can do to be more inclusive. And so that's a place to start, right? As as you develop that inclusive leadership skill, if you will. Uh, so that'd be my one piece of advice. For, uh, it's for so great. And uh, Raven, something else I know about you that you didn't talk about, and we didn't get to ask the question about uh, the leaders in your life, but I know you've talked about your mother as an example to you of servant leadership that had nothing to do with, with position or power, it just had to do with love and real leadership. And uh, so I know that's been a big influence in your life. Oh, lady, you are part of the solution. Thank you so much uh, for sharing this with us. And uh, I can't wait to have you on again sometime. We've got to do it. Uh, Folks, go to ravensolomon.com. Just go. Just go there. Um, These articles that she's mentioned are there. Uh, Information on how to book her is there. Information on her book, which, by the way, Leading Your Parents uh, it's a guide. And I think it's about, it might be the only one out there that I know of that that addresses specifically this, these younger generations and teaching them what to think about as they lead forward into future generations. Raven, thanks so much. Thank you, Patrick. Lead on, folks. 